I'm standing inside the main entrance of the Canadian Museum of Immigration at Pier 21 in Halifax. Between 1928 and 1971, almost one million immigrants passed through Halifax on their way to new homes, new lives, new jobs, and new families. The worlds they left behind were as varied a collection of human experiences as you can find anywhere. It was through the museum's main entrance that Hannah Moscovich wandered one day back in 2015. And uh, I was there with my son Elijah, who was two months old. Elijah's birth had brought a steady stream of family visitors. Hannah's aunt Enid was visiting from Toronto. We walked around the museum, we really enjoyed it. And so we went into this little office that's at Pier 21. It looks like a little bureaucratic office, but people in there will look up records of your family arriving at Pier 21. And what Hannah and her aunt Enid discovered about their family, well, it blew their minds. I was like, holy like, in this place is where my family crossed over into being Canadian, and because of that, they lived. And because of that, because they did that, I have my son Elijah. This is Countless Journeys. I'm your host, Mark Sakamoto. Hannah's story and more is coming up. I felt like it was home. It represented, you know, the kindness and compassion and generosity that came to symbolize, you know, Canada. When I fell asleep that night, I felt settled, I felt safe, I felt I could make this work. Our family is just so enriched by having him be a part of it, so we're as grateful as he is. This country, Canada, who has given everything, you need to give it to this country. I arrived here in December 46 and I will never ever regret it. <laughs> never. J'ai vraiment réalisé la force de ce pays, la générosité de ce pays, l'ouverture qu'a ce pays et surtout cette sensation de paix et de calme. Everywhere I travel now there's no place like coming home to Canada. Welcome to Countless Journeys, where we share the stories of newcomers to Canada from decades past to present day. We'll hear firsthand from some of the people whose contributions to this country's culture, economy, and way of life are helping to shape the Canada of tomorrow. And to start things off, I'm joined by producer Tina Pitaway. Welcome. Thanks, Mark. So we heard in the opening about Hannah Moscovich and her visit to the museum back in 2015. Yeah, that summer was a busy one for Hannah and her husband, Christian Berry. As you mentioned, their son Elijah had just been born, and they'd visited the different exhibits here at the museum, and they were winding things up when Aunt Enid suggested they check out the archives office that's on the main floor of the museum. It's just your right when you walk up the ramp in the museum. That's right. It's the Scotiabank Family History Centre. And as the name suggests, visitors to the centre can work with museum staff to search the databases to see if there are any records about their family. Which I didn't know about and wouldn't have ever occurred to me to do. And because we were from a poor family, nobody really bothered to remember anything about the family. Now, Hannah, she knew a little bit about her family history on her dad's side, but not much. I didn't even know my great-grandparents' names. But luckily, Aunt Enid did. 
And so we went in and they started pulling up records of my great-grandmother, Chaya Yankovich, and my great-grandfather, Chaya Moscovich, and them showing up in Canada in what then was Pier 2 in 1908. And I wouldn't have thought I was sentimental about my own family or that I would have been emotional at all. And yet, as they pulled up record after record after record, and we could follow through the censuses, as the children were added, so it was exciting. Like, we, we were, like, actively like, oh, my God, that's my grandfather. He's just been born. He gets added to the census. So records from decade after decade. And then the cities that they live in switch and the first names, like their English names that they were using switch. We found record after record after record, marriage records and bar mitzvah records and birth records. And it shocked me because I had lived in Halifax for five years at that point, And it had never occurred to me that this was the point of safety for my family, that they were fleeing pogroms in Eastern Europe and that they had traveled across the ocean and that they had arrived here in Halifax. What a revelation. So where were her great-grandparents coming from? Well, they didn't know one another on the way over. They were strangers. Chaim was 19 and he was coming from Romania. He was traveling alone because his entire family had been murdered in the pogroms. Hmm. Chaya was 24. She was Romanian as well. And she was traveling with her big extended family through Russia. All of them were fleeing the pogroms. And we know this because of the records, but also because of a deep dive that Hannah did to learn more about her family, right? Absolutely. After learning the basics about her great-grandparents, Hannah set out to learn as much as she could about them. She connected with relatives she'd never met. So I went to old age homes a lot of the time, and I would take my son with me, and it would be really moving to go and visit, you know, a distant cousin, but who knew them, yeah, and and interview them and find out things about my great-grandparents. And spoiler alert... (laughs) (laughs) Hannah turned what she learned from those conversations into a powerhouse of a play called Old Stock, A Refugee Love Story. That's right. She created it with her husband, Christian Berry, who's a director and a songwriter, along with musician and actor Ben Kaplan, who also takes on the role of the Wanderer, this bushy, bearded, bombastic narrator. He's kind of like this rabbinical Tom Waits type guy who talks to us, and he is sort of the voice of the contemporary era because most of the piece is set in 1908 and on with my great-grandparents. I have been libeled as a wanderer This is not the case I have a home It's just that it's an inconvenient place right now Wow, what a voice. (laughs) Did that give you goosebumps? (laughs) Holy smokes. (laughs) So the wanderer first appears popping out from the top of a shipping container whose walls soon open up to serve as a play's main set. Yeah, so I have them meet at Pier 2 in a secondary inspection line. They've both been pulled out of the sort of mass immigration lines um, because they both have medical problems, both of them. One of them has a rash and the other one has a cough. So they get pulled out and they have a romantic meeting in a secondary medical inspection line. Are you from Romania? I'm from Romania. Romania, I thought so. But you weren't on the boat. We came through Russia. Ah, ah. What's your name? Chaya. 
Chaya, Chaim, Chay Moskovich. By yourself on the boat. No, with my mother, Rachel Yankovich, and my father, Yankovich. Haya arrived in Halifax with her extended family, and their escape was really an awful one. They faced starvation and disease on their journey through Russia. And she'd already been married, so she'd lost her husband, and she had lost a child to starvation as they were trying to escape. My brother Mark, and his wife Yet, and their daughter Shira and Sarah. <laughs> Your family. Sickness. Oh, grown. Oh. Ah, may no more harm befall you. Amen. And so they both carry with them trauma, and then they're trying to fall in love with each other and fall in love with Canada and rebuild their lives. Yeah, in the context of having experienced a lot of trauma. So how much did Hannah know about the family's history in general? Was it ever spoken of? You know, I asked Hannah about that and and about how her family felt when she first started asking around about all of this. Nobody in the family was adverse to me speaking about pogroms, but no one, none of us talked about it much. In the same way that I think people of that generation, they, they prefer not to speak about trauma, or that is what the custom was, was to not speak about it and to try and leave it behind in the old country. I knew some, you know, I wouldn't have known the history full out, the specifics of it, but I knew that the families came over because there was an uptick in pogroms, which is more or less just your neighbors decide it'll solve all their problems if they kill you. And so they come into your your small town, your shtetl in Eastern Europe, and they try and kill as many Jews as they can. So it kicked off an exodus of Jews from Eastern Europe. So there was a massive, massive exodus of Jews in the sort of early 1900s coming to Canada, to America. Wow. Uh, So uh, really, there was a lot going on politically when Hannah first dug into all of this. That's right. Just a month after Hannah first learned about her family's history, in September of 2015, Alan Curdy's tiny body yeah. washed up on a beach in Turkey. I think we all we all Oof, remember that yeah, absolutely. terrible image. Unforgettable. That iconic image of him having drowned and washed up on the beach in Turkey was in the international media. And because I was finding all of this out about my family, it was really difficult. There was no way not to equate Alan Curdy's family's story and my family's story. Yeah. Issues around immigration and refugees really played a big role in Canada's election in 2015. They certainly did. And and the election, actually, it it inspired the name of Hannah's play. At the time, Prime Minister Stephen Harper was talking about whether uh, refugees to Canada should have access to our health care, to universal health care. And he was arguing, no, that health care was only for old stock Canadians. And it set off a bit of a media frenzy because nobody could figure out what that meant, or at least it felt like a dog whistle term for racism. And Ben Kaplan and I, Ben Kaplan is one of the co-creators and the star of Old Stock. We asked ourselves, and we didn't know the answer, genuinely, are Jews Old Stock? Like, are we? (laughs) I don't know. Maybe. I just wasn't sure. 
like what old stock means or who it was referring to and who it was including and who it was excluding. Yeah, and it's those themes around who was included and who was excluded and that search for love and family that ripples out across generations. Yeah, yeah. Now, Chaim and Haya, of course, do go on to marry. Yes, and they'd eventually have four children, eight grandchildren, Uh 16 (laughs) great-grandchildren. They were busy. They were busy, and 14 great-great-grandchildren. Their descendants, they live all throughout Ontario and Quebec and, of course, here in Nova Scotia. And before I wrapped up my conversation with Hannah, I wanted to show her something special. There's a wall of honor at the museum and people's names can be inscribed onto these little plaques that are then attached to the bricks that the museum is built from. So this Sobe wall of honor, have you seen your great grandparents no. here? <laughs> no, it's going to make me cry. Hey. <laughs> They're up there. Do you want a moment? <laughs> it's lovely to see. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. So great. (laughs) Okay, I'm good, I swear. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh, I hadn't seen it yet. (laughs) 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 That is sweet. Thank you for bringing the story to us. My pleasure, Mark. It was it was great to work on. You know, one of the ways the museum stays connected to Canadians throughout the country is through traveling exhibitions. And there's an exhibition called Refuge Canada that's on tour across the country. Right now, throughout the world, over 70 million people are displaced from their homes. Dan Conlon created Refuge Canada. And I'm the uh, curator at the Canadian Museum of Immigration at Pier 21. I'm in charge of temporary and traveling exhibitions. What Refuge Canada does is it takes you inside the experience of what it's like to have to flee your life and your country. And it does that through bringing visitors inside what is a pretty typical living room. With a couch and a television, television is playing oral history interviews with people talking about life before. Then you turn around the corner, it's the same living room, but it's looted and um, blown to pieces and abandoned because somebody's fled that life. We kind of had a bunch of goals, but two central ones where we wanted Canadians to understand the experience of refugees, the things that they go through, the things that they leave, and, you know, make them walk through the footsteps of refugees. But we, you know, it begins with, you know, that fear and persecution that drives somebody from their home, and then this feeling of escape and displacement and being in limbo, that you're sort of a putting through that international system, uh, and then what happens when you come to Canada? And the story doesn't end. So you actually literally walk through that. And um, we wanted to sort of put visitors front of mind into that experience. The exhibition also looks at Canada's mixed record in responding to refugees. Sometimes Canadians fall into these two camps where people get very smug about, we're the nation that welcomes everyone, or very fearful about, we're letting too many people in. And in fact, in the past, our, our record has been very mixed. Um, you know, we've done uh, some very successful uh, um, integration of refugees, and sometimes we've closed our door with tragic consequences for people. And racism is part of it. Fear is a big part of it. The idea that we'll be swamped, that we'll be changed, uh, that we don't know who these people are. Uh, and then mix into that economic issues. I mean, the, um, the plight of Jewish refugees happened in the 1930s during the Great Depression, and there was huge levels on unemployment. And so politicians were paranoid about that issue as well, and that often gives you this kind of toxic blend. 
Refuge Canada also highlights the times that Canada really did its part in giving people impacted by war a chance at a new life. But driving through those policies was politically risky for those in power. In the 1970s, when the Vietnamese and Southeast Asian refugees were fleeing the region because after the Vietnam War, there was huge resistance to Canada into allowing the boat people, as they were called in. And people, there was a recession, high levels of unemployment. People were fearful about, you know, kind of this Asian wave. But the minister at the time uh, was just given new research about um, Jewish refugees in the 1930s and how Canada turned away almost all of them. And he, you know, he took that to cabinet and he said, listen, we can do better. I don't want to be that guy who, who shut the door, uh, slammed the door shut. It's not always easy to learn a direct lesson from history, but this is a significant one. Following the defeat of American forces in Vietnam, thousands of Vietnamese fled the country. Canada took in more than 100,000 of them. The Refuge Canada display features a doll that has a pretty great backstory that's connected to the upheaval that followed the end of the war. This little 1970s doll wearing a little dress, and it's one of those dolls you squeeze it and it pees. And it was, it was given as a gift to um, a little five-year-old uh, girl who was arriving at the Edmonton airport. In 1979, this little girl and her family were met at the airport by a group of people who had banded together, along with their church leadership, to sponsor the family. To make her at home, they gave her this little doll, and she has kept this all these years. She's now a very successful uh, physician in northern Alberta, and, uh, and it kind of symbolizes to her the idea of kind of welcome. And this is a woman who's, you know, now has a huge family practice as a doctor. So that kind of funny little doll with, uh, with its little dress tells us um, some really powerful and, and good stories. Hearing about that little doll, I wanted to learn more about the woman who received it and to find out more about her life over the last 40 years. And Tina, I understand you tracked down Dr. Nan Chang Davies. I did, and uh, I spoke with her at the end of her workday at her clinic in Calmer, Alberta. Now, Calmer is this rural community just outside of Edmonton. And as Dan mentioned, uh, she's the family doctor to about 1,500 people wow. in that community. And as a family doctor, you know, I've, I've been there when babies are born, you know, to catch the babies when they come out. And I've, I've you know, cared for the patients through the years. And I am there with them, you know, holding their hands on their last days of their lives. And it's just, yeah, it's just a profession that it's really, um, that I connect with, uh, with my heart and, and my mind. So she's obviously a huge part of that community, and she was so open to sharing the ups and the downs in her and her family's lives that have led up to now. And one of the first things I wanted to know was whether she had any memories of Vietnam. Yeah, because she was like super young when she arrived. Like, what did Dan say, five years old? Exactly. Yeah. She was four when she left Vietnam uh, in November of 78. Uh, they spent some time in Malaysia uh, before a private sponsor group brought them to Canada. But she does remember a little bit about Vietnam. I remember snippets here and there, um, you know, of, of me, I don't know, swimming in the, the river. Uh, I, I don't know how I stayed afloat, but swimming in the river by our hut. And, and re I remember seeing ducks walk by and, and such. And so there's just little snippets of, of Vietnam that I remember. It's sweet that she has some memory of yeah. her native country. How big? So how big was her actual family? Well, Nung is the youngest of six children. Her mother was a widow and, and life in Vietnam after the war was a very dangerous place. She had bullets shot at her. She had 
soldiers blindfold and drag her. She had um, to work the land, you know, until her hands bled and and um, her feet were calloused. And she stayed up through the night because she's a seamstress, and and she had to make a living for her to buy food for us at the time. And so she stayed up late through the night, um, you know, and worked by candlelight just to so close to buy food for us. My goodness. What, what what part of the country were they living in? They were in the rural south. And not only was uh, the war obviously deeply chaotic, but there was a really destructive flood that also happened just prior to them making the decision to leave. And we were living in a hut in the rural part of Vietnam, and the flood had confined us to the loft of the hut. And so for a month there, we just stayed living in the loft of a hut uh, with um, barely you know, much, anything much to eat. At the time, the uh, country was steeped in poverty and oppression by the new government. And, you know, Mom had told stories of people being robbed and killed for even a grain of rice to eat. And our sisters and brother had to forgo eating many times so that us younger ones can eat. And so she had no choice. And Mom knew at that time that, you know, if there was a future for her children, it was not there. It, the future, our future lay beyond the seas. Now, the sea that Nung is referring to is the Gulf of Thailand? That's right. You know, southern Vietnam, it juts out into the Gulf of Thailand. Right. Uh, so Nung's mother, uh, she arranged to stow away on a fishing boat uh, headed for Malaysia. What a terrifying prospect. Absolutely. Does Nung remember any of that? She remembers a little. Yeah, I, I can't fathom, you know, having to make that decision, knowing that, you know, going into that water in that boat, not knowing whether you would live or die. We had um, escaped. We had gotten onto this wooden uh, rickety uh, fishing boat. And I remember being, um, you know, herded into the boat and, and being sitting at the bottom at the belly of the boat. And it was very, um, very dark, very hot and suffocating. She remembers sitting on her mother's lap throughout the two-day journey. There was absolutely no room to stand or to walk anywhere. I can remember how nauseating um, it was because our boat was thrashed by the by the storm. And because we were stuck um, at the bottom of the boat with 300 other um, refugees at the time, we had nowhere to go in the boat. And we made our way um, to Malaysia. We were, you know, one of the lucky ones because my mom had told me afterwards that, you know, um, the boat that had left before us, little did I know, because the boat that left before us had crashed at sea, um, taking the lives of all on board, whereas we were able to make it to the refugee camp um, together safely. Jeez, that is absolutely harrowing. It's a heavy story. She also told me that when their boat arrived, they were approached by American tourists and uh, told to actually punch holes in the uh, in the body of the boat because the Coast Guard, the Malaysian Coast Guard, was going up and down the coast, yeah. and they would drag boats back out back to out sea. Back out to sea. Yeah, oh, so my pretty, goodness. pretty harrowing. Isn't it stunning that uh, throughout this horrific experience, she deems herself... Lucky, lucky, fortunate. I know. The words that she's using about her going through this awful experience is one of good fortune. Yeah, yeah. What a spirit. So what happened from there? They caught a break in all of this? Yeah, so once in Malaysia, Nung's mother, she said about applying to different countries. 
but we waited and waited, and there were um, no word that anybody wanted us. And and we learned later that uh, I think a part of the reason was that because my mom was just a seamstress, and so she she is in a I, I guess what you would consider a highly educated individual. So she's a mother, a widowed mother with six kids, dependent children, um, with little education, and so. We feel that they felt that we would be a burden to the economy um, of whichever country would that would take us on. So fortune did play a role. I mean, they're here. So what happened? Well, this refugee crisis did bring about actually the first private sponsors in Canada. They were, for the first time, allowed to help settle refugees. We saw a lot of stories about private sponsors with the settlement of Syrian refugees a few years back. So was this the original program that started that? Exactly. Yeah. So the 1970s with this crisis, um, it was the first time that the government kind of enabled Canadians to pool their resources. Resources together. I didn't know that. Yeah. And for Nung's family in particular, uh, there was a church group in Edmonton. The Our Lady of Mercy Church group led by a father and a group of uh, sponsors, their mission was to find a family that nobody else wanted. And, and it turned out that we were that family. And they brought us over. <laughs> yeah, they selected us and, and, and brought us over to Canada. What a, what a miracle. Did Nung's mom have any idea who was sponsoring her? Because this is pretty miraculous. Yeah. Well, actually, in fact, Nung says her mother was pretty nervous uh, Mm. when the plane arrived in Edmonton because they didn't know what they were coming to. Even though she was relieved that we were finally in a, you know, in this new land um, with new opportunities ahead, um, she was nervous because it was, you know, this new reality. um, And then she realized and appreciated the fact that she is now in this new land with six children with, you know, a dollar in her pocket, and she was afraid to get off the plane. So basically, um, we sat on the plane until an interpreter came up to encourage or <laughs> convince her that she could come off the plane. And then when we walked through the gates of the Edmonton International Airport, our lives changed um, forever. So when Nung and her mom and all of her siblings emerged through the gates, there was a group of people waiting to welcome them to Canada. And within that group was a little girl about Nung's age. And in that moment, when that little girl um, came up and presented me with a doll, sorry, (laughs) it represented, you know, the kindness and compassion um, and generosity that uh, that came to symbolize, you know, Canada for myself. But I had this doll sitting on my shelf for the past 40 years because it's a reminder to myself of this kindness and generosity. And it's a reminder to me to, you know, to, to work hard, to excel in school, to do well so that I can um, pay for the kindness that had given was given to our family. I'm looking at a photo of Nung from that day, that moment, and she has the doll, and she's just beaming. It's astonishing that given how quickly she must have had to grow up, given her background and what she experienced, she looks like an excited little child beaming with hope and pleasure. It's, it's quite a remarkable picture. When you look at her, she she just brings a smile to my face and um, and to my heart. And you know, those sponsors have remained in Nung and her family's lives for over 40 years. Is that right? Their family? Exactly. Wow. It's, an, it's an amazing bond. They had, you know, helped um, 
us register for school. They had helped my older siblings find work, and they help. They were a part of our lives in finding our first home and finding our first car. I know that all that I've become and all that I have is because of these wonderful sponsors, and so I live my life to to pay for the kindness um, and the generosity that was shown to myself and to our family. And in this story, it really has come full circle with Nung joining with friends in Edmonton to sponsor two Syrian families. Hmm. Back in 2016, around that time, there were lots of news clips, um, uh, images of the war in Syria. And seeing all that the Syrian people were going through during that time, seeing images of the thousands cramped in boats and those perishing at sea um, and those refugee camps, it, it just reminded me of our own plight 40 years ago. And I just felt that that I could just not sit back and not do anything. And so I felt compelled to reach out to my friends to help sponsor a couple of Syrian families over um, to Canada to give them the same opportunities that we were given 40 years ago. There were two families. One arrived in January, January 29th of 2016, and the other in February 7th, 2016. And I understand that one of those families was a single mother five kids who were living in Lebanon after getting out of Syria? Exactly. So her story really echoes. Yeah. You know, it, it just echoes across the generations. It's yeah. incredible. Hello. Then one late February evening, finally a first meeting. We've been waiting for so long for you. Welcome. Welcome to Edmonton. A moment that mirrored another from years ago. In February of 2016, that family of six arrived bleary-eyed at the Edmonton airport where Nung presented the youngest child, Alma, with a doll. Hmm. That's like hope full circle, compassion full circle. Exactly, yeah. At the airport when I met uh, little Alma, I presented a doll to Alma just as Adrian had given me a doll 40 years ago um, because I felt that it was my turn to pass on that kindness and compassion. Does Nung's doll have a name? You know, she actually uh, doesn't. And, 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 that, and that's something that Nung might change uh, when the doll gets back home from its journey yeah. in the Refuge Canada display. She's on her own little adventure. I wish I had named her so I can call, call her something. Um, but the doll itself, she's got a life of her own. <laughs> And so that's great. And it's just, yeah, it's just amazing that you're taking the message across Canada and, and just showing people what can come out of just a single act of kindness in a moment in time. It just ripples forth through the generations and, and across, you know, space and across time. And so, yeah, kindness is, is just we can't underestimate the power of kindness. It's interesting that Nung says the doll has a life of her own and, and <laughs> clearly so does Nung. And yeah. uh, what a life it is. I mean, she's giving back compassionately in all the ways she can. What a, what a wonderful Canadian. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that, and that uh, compassion and kindness, I think, is going to have 
a lot more ripples. Yeah, we're lucky to have her. We're lucky to have the Syrian families that she she sponsored. You know, Tina, something tells me that this might not be the final chapter in the story <laughs> that's been 40 years in the making. I think we're due for an update in a couple of decades. Yeah, time. yeah, Absolutely. we'll see you in 40. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Countless Journeys from the Canadian Museum of Immigration at Pier 21. Subscribe to Countless Journeys on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or visit podcast.pier21.ca. Sound designed by Paolo Pietro Paolo and Natasha Aziz. A big thank you to today's guests and 2B Theatre for providing the scenes from Old Stock, as well as actors Eric DaCosta and Shayna Silverbaird. And a special thanks to Ben Kaplan for his wonderful music. And thanks to all the museum staff who dug into the archives to find the stories and who helped make this episode. For more about the museum, visit pure21.ca or find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 